0: Share with you what we're going to be doing over these next several weeks as we come out of Easter. We're in our small groups going to be going through the after Easter book. If you're not engaged in a small group, Kevin Roberts will be glad to talk with you after church today. He'll be at one of the tables after worship where the books are and sign you up. We have groups that are meeting on Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, and a few other times during the week. There's a Thursday evening group of uh, young couples. Uh, There's a couple of other times of meeting during the week. We would love for you to be connected to a small group that flows out of our Sunday school time uh, that we have on Sunday mornings from uh, 9 o'clock until 10.15. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to connect with just a few folks around the Lord's Word in prayer together. Mutual confession and accountability. It's a wonderful time. This book has seven chapters. We're going to walk together as a congregation through those seven chapters in the coming weeks because of the themes that are in the book are very pertinent to our understanding of the accomplishments of Easter and who we are as a body of believers, who we are in Christ, and why we celebrate what we do on Sunday mornings. Several years ago, I encountered a verse of Scripture that... Um, I guess I read in a new light. I don't know if I could say I'd never read it before. I don't know if I had and just not paid any attention to it. But I was working through the book of Ecclesiastes and I don't know if it was for quiet time or some other, maybe a read through the Bible time. I don't remember what the occasion of reading through it was particularly. But I came upon a a verse that really made me reflect and had an, impact on how I viewed some things afterwards. The verse is in the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, and it says this, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because death is the end of every man, and the living should take it to heart. This is a really interesting verse because if you bring that up to date and put it into language we might use, it would sound like this. It's better to go to a funeral than to a party because everybody dies and you need to think about that. That's what the passage is explaining. It's explaining the seriousness of death. Now, we're having a party for Steve tonight and I'm sure that if you were given your druthers, you would not say, well, I'd rather do a funeral. I'd rather be at a funeral. Let's all go to somebody's funeral. The idea of going to a funeral is not enticing to any of us. In fact, I know folks who just won't go to funerals. And um, I've heard of wedding crashers, people who go and crash weddings. I've never heard of a funeral crasher. Never heard of somebody who says, man, I just can't wait. I'm going to go read the obituaries today, see where all the funerals are this week, and I'm just going to show up at all of them because I really like funerals. That'd just be a little wacky, wouldn't it? But the Bible says it's actually better for you, for your soul, for your heart, for your life, for you to attend a funeral than to go to a party. Because what you'll do if you attend a funeral and you are in your right mind, you will stop for a minute, you will sit down and you will contemplate this one thing. You're going to die. There's nothing you can do to stop that. It doesn't matter how many New Year's resolutions and fitness things that you got into. It doesn't matter what you did to try to be healthier. At some point, you're going to die. And so, what we're studying today comes right out of Easter, and it's called the rain. It's the first chapter in the book after Easter and it's a chapter that kind of sets the tone for why Easter is so spectacular and why coming out of Easter the church should have an incredibly joyful affirmation of the work of Jesus. And so if it's better to go to a funeral than to a party, I can't conduct a funeral right now, but I can ask you to join me in thinking about death for your well-being, for your good, for your temporal good, because it will make you sort things, and even more so, your eternal good, which will make you prepare things. And so I want you to join me in chapter 1 of the book of Romans and see where we get the phrase, the reign of death, why we would use language like that and what that language means. You understand that, To reign means that you are in some form a commander, a king, a queen. You have some kind of say. You dictate some kind of control. And so to reign is to be in charge, to be over. And death is reigning over all of humanity. And it is having an impact on how humans live and work and think and their behavior. So let's pick up in Romans chapter 5 where Steve was reading. And the first point on your outline is the reign of death. Very simple. This is the language that is used several times in this passage. I want to show you those so that you can say, okay, that's why we're using this language, the reign of death. That's why the chapters entitled that in the book. And that's why we would have language like this. Here's what I've learned. People are not good at talking about death. We're just not real good about it. We're we're really scared to talk about it and to have frank conversations about it. And often we'll try to avoid it at all costs unless something happens. And then all of a sudden, because of some accident, some tragedy, some event, some illness, finally it'll kind of get on our radar and sometimes too late. When I was pastoring at Evans Creek Baptist Church in the early 90s, two young people, both 17, boyfriend and girlfriend, were in a small pickup truck, had a real loud sound system in it, and they encountered one of those crossings in the section of Louisiana North of Pearl River, Louisiana, where there are some, or were at that time, some unmarked crossings. They didn't have lights. They didn't have a gate. It was just a little railroad sign. And this young couple, somehow, distracted by the loudness of the music, did not hear. And this young couple got up onto the track just as the train was approaching. And two 17-year-olds died at the same time. It was... Shocking to our whole community. The families of these two 17 year olds had no real connection with church, with God, with eternity and the ideas of the gospel. But suddenly they were jolted into a reality they had not wanted to um, deal with and be frank about. And it was one of the most difficult things that I ever walked through. When I came into the funeral home, and and I'm not going to exaggerate even the slightest bit, one of the families was literally laying in a pile, weeping so hard and so uncontrollably that they could not regain their composure. It was one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with. And they, the two families requested a double funeral, and so I... As a young minister in about 93, I think it was, maybe 94, conducted a a funeral service with two caskets, two 17-year-olds, and a packed house of broken people. Forced to face something that prior to this, either through distraction or through purposeful avoidance, had chosen not to have any kind of discussion about what does this mean and what happens to people when they die? And it was hard to do. It jolted our community. It opened doors for ministry. But it also caused some friction because when we get frank about death... You see, what, what what folks want to do, and having pastored now for 25 years... What I've found is a lot of people really want you to preach their family members into heaven. They want a preacher to come up and find some kind of way to get them to heaven in the service. And, and to somehow, (laughs) there's a, there's a story that came out of New Orleans years ago about this businessman. He was just really, really, really bad. This guy was just the epitome of womanizing and drunkenness and bad business dealings and ripping people off and just this godless lifestyle. And he passed away and the uh, brother to this man came to a minister in New Orleans and said, here's the deal, I want you to do my brother's funeral. But I will pay you $10,000 to do the funeral if during the funeral you will call my brother a saint. And so the preacher stood there for a minute, and he pondered, and he said, Okay, I'll do it. Legend has that he got up and he preached the funeral, and right in front of him was the casket, and he said, Friends, in front of you today is one of the most debauched people on the earth. He was a glutton. He was a drunkard. He was a womanizer. He was a thief. He was a coveter, an idolater. He just went on and just laid all of the man's sins out that were known in the community. And people were in a, literally back there secretly going, yeah, yeah. And he said, but compared to his brother sitting on the front row here, this man was a saint. <laughs> uh, so be careful what you ask for in funeral preparations. But quite seriously... When we get into the frankness of death, people get offended. The idea that a loved one could actually perish and go to hell is something nobody wants to talk about after the fact. So let's talk about it before the fact. Let's have a frank conversation about the reign of death and... And let's get to the place where we can talk with our children and our grandchildren and our spouses and our and our, our siblings and our parents. And let's get to the place where we can have a frank conversation about the reign of death and why Easter is so important and how we should respond. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks following today, which is the seventh of the lessons. Now, if you come with me to chapter... Uh, and I wrote the wrong chapter on some of these, so y'all forgive me for that. It should be Romans 5. Go ahead, Joe, to this next one. And I'm just realizing that. That should be 5.14. And if any of them say 4 after this, it's lying. Do not trust it. We're all in chapter 5 today. So, here we go. Look in chapter 5, verse 14 of Romans. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So, here's a picture of something that is king-like, commanding, in charge, and everyone serves this in some way. All of us are under this command of death, and it's inescapable. It rained from that period of time. Now, the rain didn't end at Moses. It's just the view of the rain began to shift. Go to the next slide, Joe. Go down to verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, that is Adam, death reigned. So there you have that language again. It's reigning. It's over us. It's lording itself over us. It's influencing us. And then one more time in chapter 5, verse 21. don't know where that 4 came from. Verse 21, that as sin reigned in death. And so you have this reign going on of death. It's over all of humanity. It is ruling. It is influencing. It is affecting. It is having control. And there is no escaping it. There's no way that we can get around it. And so I'm hoping that if you're thinking with me, you're going to go, why? Why? I really want you to ask that question. I want you at this point to go, why? Why is death reigning? Can you all say that? Why? Yeah, okay, good. Why? Why is death reigning? This is a good question because when we begin dealing with death, if we're frank about it, we want to ask this and we want to work through it. We want to say, why? Why? Why does everybody die? Now, what I love is three and four and five and six and seven year olds who aren't afraid to ask the questions that we really ought to be asking. Mommy, why, do you, why does everybody die? Or Daddy, why do old people die? That one really comforts me at 53. Um, and, and so we start having these questions that children are asked that we won't even ask each other. You ever looked at another adult and said, why do old people die? Why does everyone die? We don't have that discussion. We're a little afraid of it. And so the Bible, first off, says here's the reality. The reality is death is reigning. And the question that the church needs to be able to answer to be effective in gospel ministry is, why? And so that's our second point. The second point is the reason for death. The Romans states it as explicitly as anywhere. It's basing it on something that happened in Genesis 3, where God, speaking to Adam and Eve, said to them in chapter 2, giving direct command to Adam, the Lord said, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall certainly or you shall surely die. And so God forewarned that there was a thing that they really didn't comprehend called death. They had not seen it, tasted it, heard it, experienced it. They just were told and they were to trust God that if you took part in this, you would die. And so the Bible says that Adam and Eve took that fruit and they ate of it and God said, "...from dust you came and to dust you will return." You are dying now. And they were. So in chapter 5 of Romans, we have the reason for death in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. The wages of sin is death. The reason there is a thing called death is because there is a thing called sin. And sin brings death. They cannot exist apart from each other. Sin brings death. The reason that there is a thing called death is our forefathers, Adam and Eve, having been told they would die, refused to believe and obey what God said, and they sinned. And the result is, That death spread to everyone as a result of their sin. The reason there is death today is the sin of Adam and Eve. And the evidence of the power of that sin is the sin of all of us. And the wages of sin is death. Look in verse 12 again. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam... Sin entered into the world. And death through sin, so death spread to all men. This touches babies in the womb. This touches infants. This touches elderly and young. It touches everyone. Death in its reign is reigning for a reason. And the reason... Is sin. So that in a sense, all death is directly tied to sin. Now, it may not be tied to a particular sin that an individual is doing at the moment of death or preceding his or her death. But it is tied to the reality of sin in the life of Adam and Eve so that all of their offspring, everyone born from Eve, is born with a sinful nature, a sinful desire, sinful heart, fallen and spiritually depleted, dead. In fact, the Apostle Paul explains it this way in the book of Ephesians. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the Apostle Paul says there is a spiritual reality behind the physical reality. The physical reality is that you are dying. The spiritual reality is you are dead. And so he speaks of a reality that is there in the heart that is being evidenced by the body. And so sin is the cause of death. And again, be careful in your explaining or absorbing that. That's not to say that, okay, there's this act and then there's death and that those two are definitely tied together. That is not necessarily true in the life of an individual at a given moment. But there is this act in Adam and Eve and this death and they are tied together with definitive connection that as sin entered through one man and death through sin so Death spread to all men. So in a sense, in Adam we sinned. In a sense, in Adam we die. And so that act brings death to us. And it is reigning over the world. Go to verse 15. Same chapter. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died. There you go again. Thank you, Joe. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. So here's Adam, his sin, and then passing that on to all of his offspring, us, we die because of what Adam did, but we also, in a very clear sense, have the same level of deserving it through our own sin confirming the nature of Adam. Let's look one more time in verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So here's the answer. Why does death reign? Because sin reigns. Why does death come? Because sin came. Why does death touch humans? Because our human forefather Adam sinned, and what affected him affected all of his offspring, all who are in Adam, so that in Adam all die. This takes us to the next level. So number three. The ruin by death. The ruin. I'd like you to draw a little picture. Um, somewhere on... Start with a stick figure. Kind of in a little place on your thing. I wanted to draw it on screen and I just had trouble getting that done. So just just draw a little stick figure. Ladies, if you want to draw a little lady, that's cool. Put the little dress on. All right. Um. And I want you to draw an arrow going up with a little space, an arrow going down from the stick figure, an arrow going out from the stick figure on one side, and an arrow coming into the stick figure from the other side. Okay? So you got four arrows. Up, down, left, right. And either on the left or the right, have the arrow pointing in toward the stick figure. Can you do that? I think I think we do that. Alright. The ruin by death is a ruin that happened in the garden that you and I need to really wrap our minds around to see why we are where we are today and needing what we need today. When we sinned, the ruin by death broke four relationships. Let's do the up arrow first. Put God above the up arrow. Sin broke our relationship with God. And the outcome of the break of that relationship is that we're cut off from the life He gives and we die. And so sin brought ruin, it brought death, first because it separated us from God. Now, I want you to go to the down arrow and under the down arrow write the word creation. Sin separated us from creation, so now creation works against us. Creation is decaying. Rather than this garden that Adam and Eve had that they would till and keep, that the Lord planted and gave to them, and they would expand that and subdue the earth, the result now is is that thorns and thistles come up and the whole creation is broken. Romans 8 says that the whole creation is under a futility curse. So that now nature is working against us, not for us. It's working in contrary to us rather than in cooperation to us. And so the ruin by death is that we broke this relationship with God. We broke this relationship with the creation. Now the outgoing arrow put the word others. Others. Sin broke our relationship with each other. The first thing that Adam and Eve begin to do is they play the blame game. They begin to blame others for what they are personally responsible for. Adam says, Ah, oh, it was the woman which you made for me and gave me. She gave it to me. So he's wanting to throw the blame off on her and saying this ruin came because of her. And then Eve, she points at the serpent and says, No, it was his fault. He's the one who twisted all this up. And so what happens is, is we begin playing the blame game and the ruin is a ruin where we're out of fellowship, relationship with God. We have a broken relationship with the creation, and now we have a broken relationship with others. But there's an arrow pointing in. We also, and by that arrow, I want you to write the word self. We're not just messed up with God and messed up with others and messed up with the creation. We're messed up inside. I've told you before, my mind's like a sack of cats. There's problems there. We are broken deep inside. Deep inside. We're scared. We're anxious. We're prideful. We're willful. We deceive. We use. We neglect. We abuse. We warp. We twist, we lie, we steal, we covet. We could just make the list on and on and on of what we are guilty of inside of us because that's where we are messed up. When Adam and Eve first discovered this new awareness after eating the fruit, it says they realized they were naked. They started sewing up some little fig leaves and ran and hid in the woods. Why? Because something was unsettled inside now. It wasn't just an unsettledness with God. It wasn't just an unsettledness with the creation. It wasn't just an unsettledness with blaming others. It was an unsettledness that we go to sleep with at night. It's why we like liquor and Xanax and marijuana and television and anything that will help us escape from what's going on inside. Anything that will numb it. Anything that will calm it. Anything that will settle it. We want some relief, not just from the turmoil outside of us. We've got an earthquake of turmoil inside of us. And so this ruin by death is first, go ahead Joe, an existential ruin. An existential ruin is a ruin that says that the problem and the center of all that's wrong is somehow related to me and my existence and my being. That's why some people want to no longer exist. They want to no longer be. Because they believe that that would give them some relief from the existential turmoil, from the sense down inside that something is going on in here. This is a grave struggle and it is part of the reign of death. Death doesn't just nip at the heels of our bodies. Death nips at the heels of our heart. It scares us. It frightens us. It sometimes controls us. In fact, it's so powerful in its existential struggle that in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that we are enslaved to the fear of death. In chapter two, when it talks about Jesus' remedy, and we're going to get there in Hebrews, it says that we are we we are in such a struggle that it's called bondage to the fear of death. And so the existential ruin is the ruin that makes us see wrongly ourselves as kind of the center of the universe, the center of experience and the place where all things are figured out. And it messes us up. It doesn't help us rightly because what happens is we begin being self-centered, selfish. Now, existentialists don't like us to use those terms about their thought process, but that's what happens. We begin to be self-centered, And we begin to think that things are figured out from here outward. It moves the center of where thought should be from God to self. But it's not just an existential ruin, it's an experiential ruin. All of those things I talked about, anxiety, fear, sorrow, anguish, Anger, bitterness, wrath, malice, envy, pride. You list out any of the deeds of the flesh. You list out any of the descriptions of sin. And all of those are experiential ruin. It breaks our relationships with our children when we sin and death is hanging over us. It breaks relationships with our spouses, with our families, with with our parents. It's always bringing ruin. And the more that a person is engaged in sin, the more ruin there is around them. Because that's what death is doing. Death is havoc in the soul. And so, something is occurring here. Now, God does us a favor in this. And I want to visit that for just a moment and then take you to the last two things I want to share with you. When we read earlier in the book of Romans, it says, for until the law was in the world, uh, sin was not imputed. And then it talks later about the law coming in, and it uh, increased transgression. I I want to tell you a story that will help you understand that. You see, between Adam and Moses... Sin was in the world, and death was in the world, and people were sinning, and people were dying, and they were being eternally judged for their lives. But God did a favor when He brought the law, because what the law does is the law informs us. Now, when you think of the law in this context, you have to understand all five books of Moses, from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. Um, and so, uh, Genesis Exodus Numbers, Genesis, yeah. Um, And so, (laughs) it's bad when you forget the order of the Bible uh, while you're teaching. Um, So here's what's happening. The law is doing you a favor about death. Have any of y'all ever heard of Dr. Lister from the 1800s? Any of you medical folks remember studying Dr. Lister from... He was born in 1827. He lived until 1912. The guy's famous for this. Dr. Lister figured out what causes infections. Now, he wasn't the first one, but he was the first one to really nail it and put it into practice. You see, prior to Dr. Lister coming on the scene, here's how doctors operated. This is crazy. Doctors operated... Pridefully by thinking that all the blood stains that they had gotten on their shirts, on their on their the the outfit that they would wear was a was a medal, a badge of honor of experience, so they didn't wash their clothes between surgeries or even between days of surgeries. And so they would operate and get blood and guts, I'm sorry, but they'd get that on them. And then they go to the next patient with the same bloods and guts and 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 the same tools and go to work on the next guy and then hang the robe up, pick it up the next morning, put it on, grab the same tools and do the surgeries again. Do you know what everybody was doing? They were all dying. And nobody wanted to go to the doctor because after you went to the doctor you just died. You got gangrene, you got infection, and it was horrid. So nobody wanted to go. What Dr. Lister did is he found out that bad air wasn't what was causing infection. That's what they thought back then. They thought that if you could just air out the operating room, people wouldn't get sick. So they'd take those same nasty instruments and that same nasty outfit and they'd operate on somebody. And they'd die and they'd say, well, it must be bad air, we need to ventilate better. What Dr. Lister did is he came in and he was able to prove that there was a thing called germs and that certain chemical compounds, the first one he used was phenol. Certain chemical compounds would kill that stuff. So he started cleaning his medical tools and cleaning his hands with phenol and then inserting after surgery some Soaked cotton balls with phenol on them and found out that people quit dying from infection. And so what he did was he didn't, he, he, he didn't cause germs. He let everybody know what the germs were actually doing. Now here's what people did. In rebellion, when he first started publishing, doctors worked even harder to be dirtier at their surgeries to try to prove him wrong. And so doctors would go weeks without washing their robes or their tools, trying to prove Him wrong. It didn't work. But in their rebellion, they didn't want to assume that they were the ones who were wrong. Now listen carefully about the law. When God gives us the law, it doesn't cause death. Death was already there. It tells you what is causing death. But when the law was given, it said transgression increased. Why? Because when God comes to you and He says, you are responsible for your own death by your own deeds, and if you stay in those deeds, you're going to surely die without repentance and faith in Jesus. What people do is they bow up at God and say, "Uh uh-uh, it ain't my fault. I'm not the wrong one here. Don't tell me about sin and righteousness and judgment. I'm good to go. And what they do is just like those doctors who were bowing up at Dr. Lister's teaching. They just create more death. And so if you are confronted by the law, and the law says the reason that men and women die is because of sin, and you remain in your sin, then you not only die the death, you die the second death. And so that's the next two points. Here we go, we close. Joe, help me out. Number four, the reality of death. The reality of death. I don't know if anybody's had this talk with you, but here's the talk. You're going to die. It would be great right now if we could just roll a body out and set it right in front of you and have just a little short funeral service. Because it says in the book of Ecclesiastes it would be better for you to do that than to go to Steve's party tonight. Because if we'd roll that body out and you'd come by and look for just a minute, you'd have to say, I have to pass this way too. I'm going to die. And there's nothing that I can do to stop that process. I'm going to die. You're going to die. That's the reality. Death has spread to all men. And so what we need to know, and this is the fifth point, is is there a remedy for death? Is there a remedy? And this is where I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Now, here's part of the challenge of these seven lessons, and this one being the first one. Here's the challenge. The challenge is, is I can't tell you too much about the remedy yet, because that's in the future lessons, but I do want to tell you there is a remedy. So join me in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and this is so good and explains it all for us, because there is a remedy. We, we now see that there's a rain. We, we, we now see that it is serious, that it is such that in its rain it is bringing ruin to all of us. There's a reason for it, it's sin. So here we are. Look in verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise partook of the same that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Here's the remedy. Death can only be killed by death. But not yours. You see, people who want to escape this life by death think that death will remedy death. But it won't. Your death is insufficient to remedy your death. Because you're sinful. And your death deserves not just death, but eternal death. For the wages of sin is death. This is the second death that is being described in the book of the Revelation. So the only way to combat death is by death, but only a person who doesn't deserve death. Only a person who's not tainted with the sin that causes death, and that is Jesus So here, read it again. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise also partook of the same. Jesus put on your skin. You see, He had a problem. Without putting on your skin, He can't die. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's indestructible. And so in the form that he has inhabited for all of eternity as the second person in the Trinity, he can't die. So what does he do? He takes all of the Godhead of who he is and he pours that into a virgin's womb and he takes on real human flesh and blood. And he becomes something that he couldn't be apart from this. He becomes destructible. He becomes one who can die. So the combat against sin began with a plan a long time ago. The combat against death, a plan a long time ago before an eternity passed, before we could even know what time is. And it came to fruition by Jesus entering into the womb of Mary the Virgin and taking on real flesh and blood, your skin, your vessels, your heart, your brain, your eyes, your nose, your ear. He took that onto Himself so that He could just do one thing. Live righteously and die as your substitute. That through death He might render powerless. You see, that's the thing that Satan's been after. He has used death ever since He brought it to hound and harass humanity. He's hounded us into false religions. He's hounded us into addictions. He's hounded us into all kinds of lying and cheating and stealing and killing. He's hounded us into those things. And Jesus steps on the scene and says, I'm going to break His power. And He breaks His power, not just through life that is sinless, but through death that He might render powerless Him. This is where Paul the Apostle picks up that verse and says, O death, where is thy sting? you got the story of the minister and his daughter and they're driving back from the mother's funeral. It's a true story. And they're riding in the car and a bee flies into the car and the little girl is absolutely nuts about it and she's trying to dodge it. And the father finally reaches out and he grabs that wasp into his hand. And as he grabs that wasp in the hand, the wasp stings him on the hand. And then he lets the wasp go. And the little girl starts screaming, going, no, you let it go, you let it go. And he turned around and put his hand in the back seat and says, look, what's in the middle of my hand? And she looked and she said, oh, there's something in there. He said, that's the stinger. I've taken it. He can't sting you anymore. When Jesus was on the cross, and He was your representative, He grabbed death with His hand, and it stung Him. And all of the pain and anguish and suffering of a quadrillion, billion, zillion years of dying and being in hell was absorbed into his body on your behalf. And though Satan was let go to run temporarily around the earth, He no longer has the sting or power of death. It has been vanquished by Jesus, our King. And if you would turn to Him right now, the power of death to harass you would be removed. And so I invite you to come to Jesus. Would you bow with me? You feel the ruin. You know what I'm talking about. You feel the anxiety, the stress. You feel all those things. Jesus has come to set us free from that. To take away our fear of death. To take away the sting. To take away the power. Jesus has come. And I want to invite you to Him. He has ruined the ruin. He has killed death. Though it rains, Jesus has broken its power. And we no longer have to fear it. And I want to invite you to the freedom of Jesus Christ. He took on flesh and blood. He lived sinlessly. He died as your substitute. He was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And He invites you right now to come to Him. Consider. You will either die your death or you will trust that Jesus has died it for you. Born once you die twice. Born twice, you die once. The Bible says that when you have the new birth of Christ, the power of the second death is taken away and you are free. And so I want to invite you, even this moment, to lose the fear and anxiety of death by inviting Jesus to be your Savior. By trusting Him personally. Even praying with me right now to call upon Him. Would you do that? Dear God in heaven, I believe this good news about Jesus. How He lived for me, taking on flesh and blood and never sinning. How He died for me, taking on death and shame. How He rose for me from the dead. And how He even prays for me, sitting at Your right hand. Father, I believe. Save me. Set me free in Jesus' name. Oh, I hope that you ask Jesus to save you by trusting Him. And I hope that you leave here today looking forward as we unfold over these seven lessons. How the victory of Easter in the death and resurrection of Jesus have come to set you free. Would you stand? Would you come?